HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio. This is Severin. It is Tuesday, and today we have a lot going on. I wanted to make sure to introduce my guest. It's Chris Elder from Viva Farms. Hi there. Hi, Severin. How's it going? It's going good. How's it going out there? Oh, good. High down in the greenhouse right now. It's a windy day. Sometimes there's some fails. So pulling some grass out of our sawdust floor. Yeah, they're, um, the wind is very powerful. Yeah, it is, especially here in the Skagit, lots of south, south winds. So um, Skagit is benefiting. I just heard about another um, another farm that's moving up there. It feels like you guys just keep growing your, your wonderful new community of new farmers. Do you want to give a little mini introduction to the region of Skagit and, and um, the ag scene around there, conventional and unconventional? Yeah, so the, the Skagit River dumps out. I think we're the, the largest drainage north of the Columbia River Basin, so it's a, it's a huge river drainage basin. It's all, it's all alluvium soils, um, so a lot of kind of silty loam, sand, definitely a lot of uh, large-scale production agriculture here. A lot of potatoes and tulips and kind of brassica seed crops, um, but there's definitely a pretty healthy, healthy dose of kind of small, diversified organic farms as well, and uh, that's kind of where we fit. Don't they also grow a bunch of spinach around there? There is spinach, yeah. There's a lot of spinach, spinach seed crop primarily. I don't know how much actually fresh market spinach they do. But, oh yeah, uh, it's like the, it's like the most. I think it's the uh, epicenter of spinach seed, and then it's grown in other places. Yeah, that, anyway. that sounds correct. 
I've actually, I, I was farming in Whatcom County, just north of here, for five years. This is still the, the culmination of my first year down this county. Okay, so let's talk about you. So you, where did you come from, Chris, and where are you, where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> That's a big question. Uh, grew up on a small kind of hobby ranch in Texas, ended up studying, uh, environmental biology and, and geology at a small school in Colorado. Um, Kara took a small permaculture school in, in New Mexico called Ecoversity before moving up here to uh, the Northwest. Uh, lived in Bellingham for several years, worked on a on a small fruit farm there, doing lots of grape grafting and propagation as well as uh, field work on mainly apples and pears and grapes. And then uh, got this job down here at Viva. Um, which is a pretty incredible opportunity for me. I get to manage roughly uh, 55 acres, um, and we grow strawberries, raspberries, vegetables, and also new farmers. Um, so I think that's the, the coolest component where we, we basically provide a incubation chamber for, for startup farmers, so I get to help kind of them review their farm plan and business plans, and, and I serve on sites to kind of help guide them through the season. I didn't say less of a guidance and more of kind of a assistance and counsel because a lot of them have have a pretty good game plan. I end up learning a bunch from them as well. So um, um, I didn't realize that. So you're growing, you're growing food too, and they're growing, and then it's all being distributed through the central produce hub of the Viva Farms uh, stand and, and infrastructure. There is that yeah. how it goes. Yeah, that, that's mainly it. I mean, so there's there were ten production farmers on site this past year. This year, it's again like we're gonna two, two of them are essentially graduating, and we're taking on four new farmers. And all the farmers are able to do their own marketing. They don't they don't have to sell anything through us. So one of the added bonuses that we do is we actually uh, help market produce for them. So we have a roughly 1,200 member CSA that we try to sell produce through, and then we essentially have the Viva Farms brand that we uh, we're able to to market to other restaurants and, and co-ops and uh, wholesale markets around the area. So we did just well, uh, break awesome. ground on a big uh, a big packing facility, so hopefully we'll be able to step that up even further. Wow, it thrills up my spine. And and so is the idea to, to scale and have these businesses in the Viva brand and restaurants and CSA start to generate enough revenue that you wouldn't be so grant-dependent for your... For your incubation process, or what's the what's the thing? Yeah, I mean, as, as anyone who works in the nonprofit world knows, you know, grant funding is unreliable at best. So certainly, developing other models of uh, of getting an, a revenue stream is kind of kind of critical to long term success. So, so through us helping market, we're able to produce a little revenue that way. Um, but the other part of my job is I actually manage a production crew on on uh, roughly 22 acres of, of vegetables. So we, we have a little added revenue that way, kind of through direct market sales as well. Yeah. I think that's pretty smart because incubating young farmers is sexy now, but it might not be sexy in five years, and we should, we should spend the grant money and build the nice sheds and then use that infrastructure to be more durable over the long I think that's smart. That's wow. the hope. I mean, the the food market's never going to be lucrative, but it it's certainly guaranteed to be stable. So, um, so let's talk about where people um, 
So those folks that are coming through to be incubated, um, are they people like you and you are a little bit less experienced or um, are there more folks who had ag experience but were not managers or give a little breakdown a, who are the incub, who are your little chicks? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty healthy mix. Um, there's certainly several young farmers that have little to no farm experience. Um, another component of my job is I actually facilitate a sustainable small-scale farming and ranching course as well as a agriculture kind of farm business planning course. So attending those two courses are prerequisites to leasing land from us. So they at least get the, the crash course in both business and farming, um, but hopefully they do have some background in it before. So and about half of our farmers are, are Latino and have, have actually grown up being farm workers, and this is the first time they're, they're trying their hand at farm ownership. Um, so that's pretty awesome to see as well. That's pretty awesome. To, that's pretty awesome because you know one of the things that I've been recognizing in this work, advocating for, you know, the next generation in farming and the perpetuity of the institution of farming and transition to more sustainable farming and all this. And I'm looking at these numbers and looking at the scale. I mean, the amount of land that's going to transition is like three quarters the size of the Louisiana Purchase. Right. Four hundred million acres in the next twenty years. It's just like an insane amount of land. Uh, and, you know, I know my community pretty well, but we're going to need more people. <laughs> and so it's really great to hear that those who are usually excluded, meaning the farm worker community, from, you know, upward mobility are, in fact, finding it, not only through incubators, but I feel like the incubators also come with some activism to help prop open um, FSA and other kind of credit mechanisms. Um, right. Do you have you got do you get involved in the credit side of um, of the startups that you're fostering? Um, so I mean, I mean, the the most valuable thing we can do is certainly educate them on on their options. Uh, locally, we have a Northwest Farm Credit Services, which has a I think it's called an Ag Vision program, which will basically help them figure out what they can qualify for, and I think it's a pretty low-interest loan. Um, our nonprofit, Viva Farms, uh, collaborates with another nonprofit called Slow Money Northwest, and we're also able to offer these, like small loans up to up to $5,000 at a pretty reasonable rate. And then I'm, I'm sure most of your listeners know about the, the new USDA federal loan program, which, which also has an incredibly low rate, I think it's like 1.5% interest for small farm loans. So I think certainly informing and educating about the options is is the best thing we can do, but certainly creating our own uh, our own program with Slow Money Northwest was was kind of our hands on action in that realm. Did that go pretty well? Like uh was that did it feel like people needed people needed um encouragement to get involved in that or everybody was game on both sides or well, I mean, uh, it's it's not an uncommon question to get startup farmers um, wanting to know where they can get, you know, a small chunk of change to get the season started. Um, so I think the Slow Money Northwest program has already doled out, um, like, three loans to small local farmers. So being a program that started up in July, I believe, um, it's, it's a pretty solid start. Um, and I think several of the farmers were actually farmers that are farming here at Viva. So there's definitely a, a direct impact. 
Well, another thing to consider, um, we just did three loans this past season for with Greenhorns through Kiva, and Kiva does 0% loans, wow. and um, only up to $5,000 for the first loan, but then you can go up to ten if you get through that phase. And um, one of the big things that we're working on now is exploring how to expand um, credit access for farmers and get better resources up and compiled and interpreted. And the partnership with right. Viva has been really good. So I would... It also rhymes with Viva. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that helps. That'll me remember it later. Um, so tell us some more about what Viva does uh, beyond the incubator, just a little bit more program program history. Um, history, you know, our, our directors are Sarita and Ethan Schaefer, and, and I believe that they kind of uh, founded Viva Farms based on a California incubator model. The farm's called Alba, um, where I believe they either interned or at least studied at briefly. Um, so I know they're both super um, kind of motivated to encourage and support the Latino population, so that was that was a big part of, of their impetus for starting Viva. Um, and they both speak fluent Spanish, and, and I, I speak good Spanish as well, too, so it's, uh, it's, it's a big challenge to try to engage and, and educate the local Latino population and let them know that there are other options for them out there other than just being a farm worker their whole their whole life. Um, not to say that that's bad, but, but potentially they want to have a little more control or be able to steer what and how they they grow food. Um, yeah, I mean we're I think the one of the other big things we are is we're we're super visible. You know, we're, we're right on Highway 20, which is the main thoroughfare, kind of through Western Skagit. So we're we're super available. We're always open to the public. Um, lots of tours. I gave a tour to a, a group of junior high kids last week and made them do a a bullet kale harvest and spread a bunch of wood chips for me. But it's uh it's good to be able to kind of serve that function. Lots of production farmers don't necessarily have the the time or energy to to facilitate kind of a community action or community involvement and and hopefully we can serve as a resource to help give kind of non farmers that on farm experience. Um well, and to do it on a big scale where you've got 10 growers plus you doing 22 acres of all these some soft fruit. And, I mean, that's that's not just a little, like, dance around a teeny farm. That's <laughs> production ag and public. Okay. Yeah, um, it's a wild operation. That's, yeah, that's a good, that's a good framework. Um and how do you reach out? So I know that Sarita was doing USDA uh, outreach for a while. She was working as the Latino coordinator or something like that. For uh, But what's the she, primary outreach methodology? I mean, she still serves as the, she's the WSU, Washington State University um, Latino Programs Regional um, Coordinator for Northwest Washington um, I mean, the the biggest thing we can do is is talk to people, and uh, and um, I mean, a lot of it honestly comes down to kind of postering blitzes. So many times we have course or, or like the new loan options went up, kind of in a postering campaign. So identifying where um, 
target markets are or potential new farmers are and, and trying to let them know of the possibilities um, that are out there for them. Um, we do offer certain classes on site. I mean, like I said, the small-scale farming and ranching and the, the ag business planning. We also have a tractor maintenance and safety course um, that just started up last season. Um, what other programs we have? About to teach a class on how to build a hoop house, which uh, will be fun. It's always every year I feel like I have to screw one up before I get the second one right. So, um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, sounds about right. Okay, so we talked about you where you came from, and you have this great job, and uh, you may stay doing that for a while. But or what's your kind of personal personal goal, and how does this um, how does this fit in? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel pretty pretty lucky to to be able to have a paid farming job at this point. Um, I'm also a, a master's student through Washington State University trying to get my degree in agriculture and soil science. Um, so hoping to, to build off that. I don't know, at, at this point, certainly being able to be a production farmer as well as kind of serve as a, as a counselor with, with other farmers, I kind of, I kind of feel like I got it nailed. So if I could, uh, keep improving kind of uh, my teaching. I mean, being able to teach the class and work with, with startup farmers has been incredible. Um, and having my background in ecology, I, I've been pretty psyched to, to get to do the farming, so maybe if, uh, if I ever start getting dragged down by this, I might move into agroforestry. Who, who knows? But right now, I'm feeling, feeling pretty solid staying here. You know, Viva being young, I think this is our, our fifth season on the ground. Um, we still have a exponential growth curve ahead of us, so it's a very exciting time as far as developing our systems for how we receive and market produce, you know, and improving our styles of production and agriculture. I mean, I've been farming for for almost 10 years now, but still still trying to figure out how to do it better. Um, certainly that improves the bottom dollar and improves our, our kind of a management and respect of, of the land, which is kind of a key component that some of the industrial agriculturists forget to forget to keep track of. So, so speaking of improving the land, were you guys partnered up with Growing Washington on a compost uh, compost project? Um, compost? I don't believe so. We we do partner with Growing Washington. They're kind of our main partner with with marketing and, and distribution. Uh, we kind of do a collaborative CSA with them. Um, compost, one, one cool thing we, we have kind of gotten into, you know, certainly our, our main farm, which is 33 acres, 25 of which goes out to the incubator farmers, was pretty much conventionally growing potatoes for, you know, recent history. So the soil was basically pulverized. A lot of the potato growers prefer uh, less than 2% organic matter soil. So we're kind of starting from ground zero. Um, so locally there's a, one of those bio manure digesters. We're actually able to purchase whole semi-loads of digested manure fiber, which is pretty low in nitrogen but pretty high in all the other macro and micronutrients. So we're going to do our first trial this year of, of putting roughly... 30 yards to the acre of this digested manure in order to try to 
up our organic matter and, and improve soil quality because it's felt like a little bit of a bummer giving some of these new farmers soil that, that still needs needs a lot of work to get it up to kind of production level. Well, um, yeah, i just been pouring over this Cornell Soil Health Guide. Um, right. It's so good. But um, what is digested? What is this digester? How does it, what is a digester? What is a digester? So they, they basically scrape all of the, uh, the manure and sawdust out of kind of a cow dairy. Um, I assume it's mainly out of their, their feed and, and bedding rooms and put it into this huge underground tank. I think, I think um, a lot of them are like a million cubic gallons um, capacity, holding capacity. They they pump this kind of a uh, slurry into this tank and introduce uh, I believe it's the anaerobic bacteria that basically chews on all this digested fi- fiber and manure and releases methane as a byproduct. Um, so they're able to capture all this methane and basically turn it back into electricity. Um, which I've, I've heard of several dairies locally that are basically able to um, fulfill all of their electricity requirements through the, the digested manure, but after the majority of it has been chewed up by the bacteria, there's still a, a byproduct of of fiber left over, which they they extract somehow, and um, yeah, it gets applied to lots of the lots of the dairies, corn, silage fields, or, or whatnot, but occasionally they have excess, which is what we're able to, to purchase from them. But yeah, it's, I know there's several, there's one company called Farm Power locally, which is where we're sourcing ours. I think it's even farmpower.com or .org if anyone wants to check it out. Well, this is the thing. I was, um, you know, these waste streams from from the process uh, processors also, um, we were talking about, you know, half of the U.S. corn crop gets uh, burned up to make ethanol, but that then once it's gone through the ethanol process, there's still... Um, there's still feed value in the corn, although it's much less than the you know the the unfermented corn. Right. But um, I don't know. It's amazing to see what kind of waste streams there are off of these big agri-industrial, you know, almost industrial scale processes. We went to um, me and Lucas. Do you know Lucas? He's at um, Extension. Uh. Yeah, I do know Lucas. Yeah, me and Lucas went to this. This is off topic. I'm just going to warn you. But we went to visit uh, (laughs) chicken. I mean, it was chicken shit. It was chicken manure from chicken houses, from big, you know, feeding operations. And then they would bring it in and they would mix it with gypsum. And they, it was like a revolving airplane inside a hangar. Like bigger than an, longer than an airplane, big right. revolving tube that would tumble the chicken shit with the gypsum, and they would huh. sterilize it. Then they would wet it. Then they would inoculate it with um, microbial uh, life, and then they would dry mm-hmm. it again. And then they would palletize it, and then it became, you know, certified organic. Uh, I think I think I've actually heard of that. Uh, no, there's a grower. For, for p- potatoes. Huh. 
Uh, yeah, I think there's a grower up in Whatcom County that that's his main source of organic uh, fertilizer. Is is what exactly what you're talking about? It's the only uh, organic nutrient additive he's found that actually uh, makes a significant impact on his crop crop growth. That's cool. Yeah. And, um, well, and, and, you know, so not only, you know, so you could say a lot of different things, but, um, you know, it's a waste product. It has to get used for something. You could say that. You could say, well, it ha- they, they're sterilizing it. Um, and apparently, like, even in conventional potatoes, people are saying that they're going to want to sterilize all of their uh, manure in the future because of worries around E. coli. Because the right. manures coming from animals who are have compromised gut functionality because of what they eat and right. are more likely to be bad E. coli, but um, but the other part is just realizing, you know, that that's still basically chemical chemically produced nitrogen. It's not organic necessarily. Yeah, that's uh. That's a big topic. I guess I could recommend a, a, a book to, to your your listeners, which is uh, called Alchemy of Air by Thomas Hager. It gives a good backdrop into the, the history of the fertilizer industry and and mainly the, the nitrogen fixation uh, process, Haber-Bosch process. And it's pretty, pretty pretty wild, pretty stark. It puts, um, puts a big spin on kind of uh, or, organic versus... Uh, versus conventional and kind of the, the reality of, of how many organic nitrogen sources there actually are in the world, um, especially combined with how many mouths there are to feed out there. It's, uh, I used to think the debate between organic and conventional was pretty pretty black and white, but um, I think I think it is a little more complex than, than a lot of us realize. Um, so just... Just to break that down for just one more second, basically the synthetic nitrogen is coming from the air, um, from natural gas. No, yes, it's coming from natural gas. Well, the uh, the air around us is roughly 80% N2, which is dinitrogen, which is completely unavailable to, to biological life forms. So, you know, you got legumes. And lightning strikes are the two main ways where nitrogen gets fixed, which basically puts it into NH3, which is nitrate, or NO4, which is ammonium. Um, so in this process, two Germans back in, like, 1910s, 1920s, um, basically developed a process where introducing iron as a catalyst and uh, putting hydrogen gas and nitrogen gas under extreme pressure were able to basically cleave that dinitrogen bond and come up with a byproduct of ammonium, which basically made atmospheric nitrogen plant available. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, supposedly the statistic is 1% of all kind of electricity used in the world goes to um, fueling these Haber-Bosch industrial factories that are, that are all over the globe now, um, which creates this uh, nitrogen fertilizer product. Uh, it's a trip, yeah. Supposedly, most of us, uh, up up to ninety percent of the nitrogen in your body came from a synthetically derived source. So it came out of the air, went through a factory first, and got to you. 
unless you're unless you're living off of a farm that's not using any conventional corn or fertilized hay or fertilized grain. That's that's the hope. Yeah, I, I don't know. I definitely know when when I grew up, I didn't I didn't have the best diet uh, for my parents. So it's, it's been a big it's been awakening. I, I have two little girls now, certainly trying to make those conscious choices of uh, of eating real food. But, yeah. Is it in the book? Do they talk about what are the impacts? Like, does synthetic nitrogen uh, create carb, or does it create different quality of of? For like, for all intents and purposes, it, is it the same? Yeah. If for, for all intents and purposes, the as far as the plant's concerned, it, it's the same nitrogen. You know, it's the same elemental base structure. You know, the the plant would use inorganic nitrogen the same way as it uses organic nitrogen. Um, one of the the main kind of environmental impacts that the book cites in, in the final chapter is uh, is that roughly 50% of all the synthetic nitrogen that's applied. Um, runs off immediately, whether it goes back into the atmosphere or ends up in the groundwater. Um, so not only are we fertilizing the heck out of our food, but we're, we're basically fertilizing the heck out of the entire world. Um, so it's, it's interesting to think about how much how much goes into creating this synthetic nitrogen, and then we essentially just waste half of it, and then we're not even totally sure about all those all the ramifications that to follow that way stream. Well, and I thought also that applying of applying uh, synthetic nitrogen even on pastures, even occasionally, uh, really uh, distorts the agro ecosystem, the, the soil ecosystem, because it's like a very intense pulse. Yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of it can be pretty hot. Uh, or you can easily over nitrify um, an area very quickly if you're, especially if you're dealing with straight nitrate. Um, I guess that's one of the, the benefits to applying compost or manure. Um, compost More especially buffered. is kind of like variable rate release, so you're not going to get the, the huge nitrogen burst all at once. It should be spread out over the next year or two. Um, so yeah, it's a uh, I'm I'm still learning. Actually, after this interview, I'm, I'm going to be going to my class to have this same discussion all over again with several of my graduate student cohorts. Uh, awesome. Well, um, I didn't. I want. I, I want to stay within the time, but um, since you're on the book recommendation tip, and I'm always looking for more book recommendations, do you want to clue us into a couple more soily favorites before we check off? Let me think. I mean, uh, honestly, I, I would probably just re-push the, the Alchemy of Air one more time um, um, by Thomas Hager because it's, it's an incredible read. I mean, I I was almost shocked. This is where kind of my history in public education kind of, like, disappointed me one more time. It's, it's a huge history of how basically this nitrogen fixation process uh, not only, you know, changed the world of agriculture, but it was basically what allowed Hitler to uh, 
to fuel his cars and create all of his munitions and basically come to power the way that he did. Um, so it's an, incre- an incredible kind of like history of of the industrial era and, and modern world that we know of. Um, but, you know, most of us have never even heard of the Haber-Bosch process. Um, but it's kind of it's paramount to the, the world we live in now and kind of how we all came to be who we are or where we are anyways. Um, yeah, that's, that's the big one that, that comes to mind. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your being here. I have a couple of announcements. Um, number one announcement is the new Farmer's Almanac is done, and uh, it's out, and it's distributed by AK Press. So if you have a bookstore in your town that is kind of more indie-leaning, indie uh, they could get it. If you have a feed store or co-op or grocery or equine supply depot, uh, please email us, almanac at thegreenhorns.net, and let us know your recommendations for where we can distribute. We're already, we already got our ankles up into the next uh, 2014 edition, so we're just trying to build um, a distribution network for the almanac. It's 337 pages now, and um, just full. Full of good stuff. Um, 120 contributors. So we're we're building on the 50 contributors on the last book. Who knows what we'll do next? Um, another thing to know is that the National Farmers Union has its annual meeting in New England. Um, that is on March 2nd through 5th. So New England Farmers Union is mostly strong in the, the Dakotas and more kind of in the populist areas of the country, but the New England chapter formed a few years ago and has been gaining strength. So now those of us who are in New England um, and who identify with this, uh, the goals of the, of the National Farmers Union, which are pretty awesome, you should really read their policy platform. It's 150,000 members, um, so it's basically the largest farm organization after Farm Bureau, but is a heck of a lot more progressive. Um, so they have their conference in Massachusetts and Springfield on March 2nd through 5th. Um, there's a bunch of other things going on. Um, I'm speaking at Yale Divinity School on the 23rd of February. It's called Just Food, um, and I'll be joined by CJ Centel who's in the agrarian rat pack, who um, has written a lot on radical agrarianism and is working on his book, which is about slavery and agriculture and whether uh, or not agriculture is predicated on exploitative servitude, which is an important question to be asking. Um, And what else? Oh, yeah, bread and puppets. Next week at the Grange here in Waylandsburg, we have the premiere of the 50th anniversary tour of Bread and Puppet Theater. Bread and Puppet Theater is out of Vermont. They've been doing political theater for 50 years, and we have their first performance here at the Waylandsburg Grange Hall, and then there's um, Nofa Vermont right after that. So consider getting in a car and making a carpool and heading up to the North Country we're going to have a big dinner party after the 
Bread and Puppet performance, so you're welcome to come on over. That sounds like that sounds like I covered some good things. Okay, everybody. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, thank you, Severin. Good talk to you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.